Matthew chapter 14, and I just want to open up this morning with a little bit of Bible nerdiness. I'm sorry. So I know we like when we do that a little bit, uh, but, but what I want to share in this terms of Bible nerdiness is in this section of Matthew, uh, where we're finally at with the story of the feeding of the 5,000, it sounds like a really cute picnic story with Jesus. And we have this vision in our heads and in our minds, you know, with the checkered blankets spread out and these nice families, kind of like the J-Dub pamphlet you might get on your doorstep. And you're like, yeah, that looks great. That's not what's happening in Matthew, right? So I'm going to just put that in your head for a second. What I want to recapture in the way that Matthew is writing this is some of the incredible brilliance and linkage to Old Testament references, the intricacy of the scriptures, and how they're all related of this grand narrative of the story of God that is all leading to Jesus. And one of the problems we face when we come across especially the Gospels is they're so familiarized with each and every one of us that we go, great, another miracle story. Um, all I want to know at the end of today is if Jesus is my king, is he going to give me the bread? Like that's, that's just kind of what I want to know and the application for my heart. And I will concede that there is some very easy takeaways when you read this section of scripture, but there are some nuggets that I want to unearth for us that if we actually do the hard work, it really brings this story, why Matthew is writing, and what Jesus is doing alive to us. For example, when you look at this, and we're going to read it in just a moment, but have you ever considered the kind of people that are gathering in Galilee with Jesus. Their background, the way of living, their lifestyle, or why they might be so curious to come out in such a large number to hear about this Jesus. What do you think it is that they are wanting? Or when you look at other accounts like in Mark or John or in Luke, which all record this story, when you look at all of those uh, different accounts of what's being said, Jesus brings out the idea that they are like sheep without a shepherd. And what does Jesus mean? And what is he referencing? I'm going to tell you this morning, it's probably not the psalm you're thinking of. We're going to have to dig a little deeper and head back to Numbers, which we'll get there at some point this morning. And so when you look at this text, have you taken into consideration why they were so ready to make Jesus a king and what their hopes were for him. And in light of that, why Matthew is placing this story here and now in this section. Why that he has plopped it down when Mark puts it earlier and John puts it pretty early. What is Jesus telling, or what is Matthew telling us about Jesus? What is he trying to draw in the imagery of the Jesus is better than Moses? having the safe water passage narrative, replicating much of what the Israelites had gone through, having now bread being passed out, imaging the bread there in Exodus that had come down from heaven and the conversation that happens in John where they said, as Michael read, give us bread like Moses, like our ancestors ate. It's just oozing and dripping with these ideas of Jesus is something incredibly special, so much greater than what you ever could have anticipated, but so different at the same time. 
In fact, if you have a Bible, uh, if not, I think Britain has this slide. It's Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18, and you can flip way back there if you would like. There is this expectancy in all of Israel's history that there was going to come a leader like Moses, but would be greater than, do so much more for Israel than Moses. And this comes in verse 15 where it says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. He's essentially saying out of Israel, is going to arise this prophet. And Jesus is fulfilling that. He, like Moses, has been on a mount delivering the Sermon on the Mount as Moses delivered the law to the people of how we're to live. It continues and says, It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, therein what they have spoken, I will rise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth like Moses, speaking the word, the truth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them. And when we look at Matthew and the way he is writing, it's not just some great historical accounts of some miracles that Jesus did. It's incredibly intentional. It's working its way, telling the story uh, about Jesus, but that he is so much more than they could have anticipated. So let's let's read this text this morning, and then we're going to break it down. It's going to be a lot of fun this morning. Verse 13 says, Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. When he had heard what? A couple of weeks ago, we found out that John the Baptist, off with his head. All right, some sad news there for Jesus. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. What, what, what's going on here? And Why would crowds begin to follow Jesus at this time? And what was the news? The news, John the Baptist being dead. John the Baptist being one who spoke against Herodias which was Herod's wife, well, it was actually his brother's wife, but he, you know, kind of slid her over into his harem there and began to hang out with her. And then her daughter did a little dance from him, Las Vegas-esque, right? That's what's going on there. And so John the Baptist, prior to that event, was saying, this is wrong, this shouldn't be happening. And there were a lot of people sympathetic towards the words that John would have been speaking, saying, we need to bring in morality. We need to bring in the kingdom of God. We need to bring back all of these ethics that God had revealed to us in the Old Testament. And so what we see here is a crowd, a group of people that are like-minded, sympathetic towards this mission and vision as we'll unpack in just a moment. When the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot to the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. 
Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And when they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up the 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. What is this passage about? There's a miracle in there. And it's really cool. We're going to discuss a little bit of miracles and their redemptive nature. But it's more than bread. It's about a revolution. Jesus was about a revolution. I think that's a word that many people in our current cultural setting can identify with. As we've all watched political unrest happen this year in our country, we've maybe even felt the tension with friendships or neighbors or strangers that think we're friends on Facebook. And we've been caught up in disagreements and expressed strong opinions. We've witnessed certain events unfold on television. And that to us in this day and age has felt a bit tense, right? We've all had that emotion. Take that feeling, apply it to the day of Jesus and intensify it by at minimum a thousandfold. And here, here's what I mean. If you were a Jew in that day, and you were living in the Galilean region, you had a few hundred years ago gotten your land back because of the Maccabean revolts, and your farms came back into play, and they were being passed down from generation to generation. Now, all of a sudden, you have Roman occupation taking place in your territory, taxing you demanding of you, and there's not a lot of regulations. Like, you think our government's bad with that stuff? It was shady back then. So Jesus has a tax collector on his team. His name's Matthew. I love that Matthew's telling the story. And Jesus has a zealot on his team. Who do you think is going to be comfortable in Galilee? The the zealot, the Sicarii, those that were the men of the dagger, those that would hope to bring revolt and restore Jewish order. Matthew, he was somewhat, I wouldn't say sympathetic, but he saw he could profit off of Roman occupation. And so he was a tax collector. Now he's on Jesus's team and he's there in this land with people he probably ripped off and they wouldn't be too happy with him. However, if you get this image in your head for about 400 years now, you haven't heard the word of God through a prophet. You had had land, your land's now taken again, and your life is being turned upside down. And Jesus shows up, and there's now a crowd following him. You're finding out that there's others who are marginalized, who are cast out, and they're being brought in. You're finding out that he's actually doing these things of Isaiah where he's healing the lame and the sick and he's causing the blind to see. You begin to hear rumors rumbling about this large group of people that are coming together and they are excited. Make no mistake about it. This is not a picnic. This is a revolution. But it's not the kind of revolution that people wanted, demanded. It's the kind of revolution, though, that Jesus is going to bring for them. We'll see that in just a second. First of all, we see miracles in Scripture, like this miracle. Um, They're not just so Jesus can do some neat tricks. They're not just so people can go, oh, yeah, yeah, he multiplied bread. He must be God. His miracles are redemptive. 
What do I mean by that? They're to restore, they're restoring aspects of what life would have been like before the fall. Before the fall, the intention was no man would be hungry, no woman would be starving. And so what does Jesus do? The crowds are hungry, and he says, we're going to feed them all. When he heals a lame person, he's bringing in the redemptive kingdom aspect of what will be future when he comes back and returns, and he's bringing it into the present now for people to experience the restorative, restorative maybe, is that a word? We're going to roll with it this morning, aspect of the kingdom. It's wonderful. Yes, it's declaring something very unique about Jesus, but there has been other miracle workers up into Jesus' day on the scene. There have been people like in Pharaoh's day who could mimic the same kinds of wonders that Moses was doing. This is unique in that it's bringing restoration to people's lives. In addition to that, it's revealing. It's redemptive and it's revealing because this is an intentional act to show this massive crowd of Jews, oh, I'm not kind of like Moses. I'm better than Moses. I'm not just going to give you bread today. And in that little John section, if you tease it out, they're begging him for more food. And he's like, that's not what I'm doing. I'm going to give you myself. I am the bread of life. I'm the better than Moses. Not only do we need to keep that in the back of our minds, but when we understand that the location in which Jesus is doing this would be like heading out to Mitchell. Anybody been out to Mitchell before? Mitchell people and city people, they're different. They maybe even have some different views about what's going on in our current cultural environments, right? They might have a few more things dug under the ground than those people living in the city. Their their mindset is different. Jesus is with those kinds of people. In fact, he was in a territory that was incredibly sympathetic towards the zealots, which were these like freedom fighters. They wanted to take the kingdom by force. And so they would do these guerrilla raids in Jerusalem and all of a sudden they would go in with their daggers and stab Roman guards and create chaos, disorder, and anarchy and hope to bring about a revolt to then reestablish Israel's reign over their land and territory. And the people in the hill country, they were welcoming them because they're ticked. They are so angry that they're being oppressed and taxed on the very land that they've owned. In fact, many of them in that day would have ended up giving their land back to the Roman Empire. They're now servants serving on their own land just to eke out a little bit of a living for their own lives. This is a terrible, horrible time to be living if you are in Israel. Unless you seek to compromise your beliefs and your values and you join in the Roman government and how they were conducting their businesses, maybe you can make it. Tim Mackey, I love him, always quote him. He says this on this issue specifically. The point is, is you're on your own land. You have a compromised leader who doesn't represent your interests. You have Roman militarization everywhere. Taxes are heavy. People are going into debt. People are being sold into slavery. And what the zealots want What the people gathered around Jesus want is the kingdom now. 
Isaiah, you could tag him as the messenger of good news. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 11, let me read this to you. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosoms and gently lead those that are young. Let me just kind of sum that up for you. It's this inspiration of hope that one is going to come and restore the order that Israel had so longed for. And so they're looking for a leader. They're looking for one who would do that. There was a movement in Jesus' day and age, just a little bit before him, led by Simon Bar Giora. And he went to the Jordan River, which was very symbolic for Israel. There, when they would cross the Jordan into the promised land on their conquest, being led by Joshua to go take the land that God had granted to them. This man, in the symbolic act, goes to the Jordan, crosses it as if he's bringing the good news to Israel that I'm going to be your leader. And he got stomped out and trashed. Now, there's Jesus. He goes to the same river. He's baptized in it. He's not leading by conquest, but he's leading by teaching the gospel, the good news, the laying down your life, the giving up of your rights, for other people to be invited into the kingdom. You see, he's bringing a hope of a revolution, but it's not like the one they want. Now, in their minds, 5,000 men gather. They estimate upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people if women and children are with them. It's like almost the city of Redmond coming out to hear Jesus and him feeding them. In the middle of nowhere, and they want the kingdom on their terms. They want it their way. And Jesus comes and he's not offering them a nice little kingdom in their way. He looks at them and he looks at this crowd and he begins to teach and he begins to share. And while the zealots would have been sympathetic towards John the Baptist and he would have had a bit of a resonating feeling with that, Jesus would have. No wonder these crowds had come underneath of him and said, here's our leader. Maybe he will do for us what nobody else has done. They're yearning for a king because of the moral decay, the outrage that's happened in their own communities. And they're saying, help us, lead us, guide us. It's the internal human desire to be led by a good, kind, gracious, loving leader to restore the chaos and disorder that's even happening in this world today. Every four years, we look to some leader to try to take us out of our despair and desperation to lead us into, quote unquote, the promised land, the good life, or the kingdom. Every one of our leaders Every one of our leaders, including the last eight years, has failed us in that. We want the kingdom, 
But we are not able, we are not able to produce the king because the king has already come and the king is going to return, yet our hearts are longing for this. However, many of us sit in the exact same position as the Israelites saying, we have the best definition of the kingdom. We know what it should look like and how it should handle outsiders, how it should handle generosity, how it should handle all sorts of other issues that are going on in our world today. And people are looking for a leader And Jesus, in that day, goes to this place with this group of people, and he's presenting himself as their leader. But they're not going to want him. They're not going to want him. The unexpected revolution is what Jesus brings. He's out teaching. He's talking about peacemaking, laying down your life, loving your enemies, having compassion on them. And then he looks at this crowd And in Mark 6, 34, he says, they are like sheep without a shepherd. I say the word shepherd, and we're like, pastor. That must be what Jesus means when he talks about this. That's not what Jesus has in mind. In fact, he's quoting from Numbers chapter 27. And if you can find that, you can turn there with me. If you cannot, I totally understand. It's in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Here in Chapter 27, verse 17. This is what Jesus is quoting. This is the scene, Israel, on the outskirts of the promised land, needing to be brought into it, desiring to be brought into it. And here's what Moses says as he's looking for a successor. Who shall go out before them and come in before them? Who shall lead them out and bring them in? That the congregation of the Lord might not be as a sheep that have no shepherd. This, this is what people want. Somebody to lead us. Somebody to guide us. But will we listen to the shepherd that God has provided? Will we listen to his ways and his kingdom and what he actually desires for our lives? Because Jesus is going to give them so much more as the better than Moses but it'll feel like so much less than what they want. See, as a Christian, this is something that I've had to come to grips with. Jesus gives us so much more than we could ever imagine. But sometimes, because it's painful, because there's suffering, because there's laying down of my own life, it doesn't jive with me, and it feels like so much less. But are we going to be willing to listen to this shepherd who is saying, I understand these sheep and what they want, and I'm going to be the one to lead them into that. And I'm going to do it through teaching and healing. And then he talks about bread, and we get what he means from that passage in John being the bread of life. In that day, bread was pretty much the ultimate. If you had bread, you were going to survive and live, even if it wasn't gluten-free, right? You were just going to make it, I promise. Bread was this picture symbolism of the sustaining of life in that day and age. When we think about it, we think carbs and I'm laying off of it and I'm staying away. But to be daily bread was incredibly significant. And Jesus came not bringing death, not bringing revolts in the way they wanted it, but he comes bringing life. And I'm gonna sum it up with this. That's pastor sum up, so that's seven minutes. Hang with me. I say that a lot. 
What do you want from Jesus? I mean, if you've got one of those cool journals, they're back there, they're free. Michael and I designed them. You could write it in there. If not, you can write it in your phone, whatever. What do you want from Jesus? Do you and Jesus want the same thing? Do you even want the same thing as Jesus? I know it's taken us some time to get here, and I've been saving it for this passage. But if you weren't appalled that on the steps of our capital that there were gallows and Jesus save signs, are you aligned with Jesus? Are you? Am I? If you're looking at what's going on in Israel and all you're doing is saying, pray for Israel, pray for Israel, did Jesus not come for all? Are we not to be praying for Hamas and peace in the Middle East over all? Why are we so skewed and one-sided and only want to fit Jesus into a certain box and set of values? Because it aligns with what we believe politically? I'll tell you what, we're all going to be, me included, a big shock when he doesn't fit into our box. Right? Yeah, get him. What do you want from Jesus when it comes to your sexual ethic? Because Jesus is not shy about talking about that. This is that left side of the argument. You know, the progressive sexual agenda where gender is now neutered and we decide for ourselves. I mean, that's like the ultimate middle finger to God to say, this is how you made me. I doubt that I'm going to be this and decide for myself what is right or wrong, what is male or female. You see, both sides have to look at these things. And I can't just stop there. What about generosity and loving our neighbors? How do we care for people who have so much less and they're trying to come and be a part of a society that is so promising? Christians, I understand that our society has placed us in one of two camps and we're trying to choose between what we determine as the lesser of two evils. But let's do a better job at being bridge builders rather than those that just simply blow up one side or the other. Because this group, they wanted Jesus to lead the revolt. That group at our capital steps, I think some of them wanted Jesus to lead that revolt. And he goes, no, no. And when are we going to voice up, step up, and condemn things that aren't right? On both sides. Goodness, there is soul searching to do in our hearts on these issues. Jesus is bringing his kingdom, and we've got a lot of mess to work through because our kingdom is not his. It's so much less. We chose for ourselves to determine what is right or wrong, and since Genesis 3, we get it wrong most of the time. It has not gone well for our culture. What do you want from Jesus? You're here because you're hopeful that Jesus will give you a spouse, will financially hook you up. Like That's not what he promises. Are you here because you think Christians are nice? They're not. (laughs) I'm just going to say it. (laughs) Like, it's been a hard year. I'm Christian, so yeah, I'm like part of that. There's times I've not been nice. I understand that. I'm not minimizing or excusing it. See, 
A lot of us look at Jesus and we want this revolt, this revolution, but we need to get at the heart of what his revolution's actually about. That's a whole lot less of me and a whole lot more of him. It's a whole lot more of his ways and a lot less of my ways. And it doesn't always make sense. But Jesus didn't come in order to give you your version of the kingdom. He came to be your daily bread. This is why he came in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, first and foremost, he came to glorify the Father. And then he came for the lost. He came to save those in need of him. Luke 19.10, you can look at that as well. And if you are going down any other roads, you're missing it. You're missing it when it comes to Jesus. What do you want from Jesus? Why are you even here? And this is what Jesus says. I am the bread of life. Is he enough for you today? Your side may not win. You're gonna lose some battles. But is Jesus enough? When he's not like the children of Israel, we grumble and we complain. Redeemers, no more grumbling and complaining in the sanctuary. <laughs> or this room, whatever you want to call it. Let's be happy. We're here together, gathered in his name. See, we really only have those two options. Either I can get on board with the reality that God is good, that God sees the drama and the chaos, and he's ultimately going to win out the whole story of Revelation that's written for us. Or we can begin to grumble and complain that the creator of the universe is not very good at running the universe. And I certainly know better in how to stomp out all the problems that are happening right now. We tried, it went poorly. Let's get on board with him and who he is. His invitation is, come take of me. So I want to present this to you. Do you want to join a revolution? I do. Join the Jesus revolution. And there are some things in your life you're going to have to look at and say, that's not going to make the cut with the Jesus revolution. And that's not going to make the cut with the Jesus revolution. And I'm going to repent of those things that I participated in. And I'm going to turn to him and ask him how to daily lead me in the surrendering of myself and the taking up of my cross and the esteeming others above myself. And I'm going to love them well because he is a king who is coming back. And I want as many people around me to be on team Jesus at the end of the day. That's what I want. And Jesus says, on the bread of life. In Matthew 4, he says, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from his mouth. In John 6, do not work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. This is what we bring. He did not take the 5,000 and hand them a sword and a dagger and say, let's get it. That's why in John 6, they all leave because he says, I'm not gonna do the killing you're going to kill me. I'm not bringing the dagger, but you're going to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. His words, not mine. They said, that's offensive. Everybody left and the disciples went, this revolution is not gonna take off. The revolution of Christianity has expanded globally and it continues and God is doing good stuff. He gave his life. Taste and see that he is good. Let's pray. God, thank you for your revolution. Sign me up. Convict me where I've been wrong. Help us to have conversations in uncomfortable areas to challenge maybe some thoughts that aren't of you 
and to encourage other thoughts that are of you. May we live like you because you lived for us and gave yourself for us. You did it and paved the way and we just wanna step into your footsteps and follow very closely behind you. Continue that in Redmond, in Central Oregon, and beyond. And may redeemers get to be a part of it, the Jesus revolution. We love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.